Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Joshua 23. Joshua 23, it's on page 197 of the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Friends, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that Bible is there for you. If you don't happen to own a Bible, well, please take that Bible home and make it yours. Read from it. We would love that. Joshua 23. Uh, friends, if you're here to uh, new to Redeeming Grace Church, what uh, we're about to do this morning is remarkably normal for our church. I'm about to open the Bible, which we understand to be God's Word. I'm opening it up to a specific passage here in Joshua 23. I'm going to explain its meaning and seek to apply it to our lives. And that's what we do here each and every week here at Redeeming Grace. And yet this morning, uh, what we're about to do, this particular sermon is, is somewhat unique because I'm about to preach a sermon on a sermon. <laughs> These last two chapters of Joshua contain two sermons that Joshua preached at the end of his life. If you look at the text there at the beginning of, of chapter 23, it clues us into the fact that there's actually a long gap of time between Joshua 22 and Joshua 23. Uh, the events of Joshua 1 to 22, those 22 chapters, they happen in about a span of five years. But when the curtain opens on Joshua 23, it seems like we've skipped ahead maybe a couple of decades uh, we know that since Joshua 24 tells us that Joshua died when he was 110 years old. So, so by this time in Joshua, here in chapter 23, all the major battles are done. Uh, the promised land of Canaan, which is, of course, the, the focal point of Joshua, has been divided and dispersed to Israel as her in inheritance. Uh, Joshua, the great captain of Israel, is now an elderly man nearly on his deathbed. I don't know about you, but given Joshua's outsized, massive role in the history of salvation, I want to know what he wanted to say to the people of Israel before he moved off the scene. I want to know the content of his final sermons. And certainly, friends, because the Scripture is indeed the Word of God, we can be confident that this 3,400-year-old sermon still rings out with clarity and relevance for us even this morning. So let's read together. Starting in verse 1, Joshua 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its, its elders and heads, its judges and its officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just, to, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. 
For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things of the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you uh, from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land that he has given to you. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, each week I I give you the main idea of the sermon, which if I'm doing this right, uh, reflects the main idea of the biblical text. And believe it or not, uh, Joshua himself shapes his sermon around a main point too. And I think we, we can see that through the structure of this sermon. So look at the text. Joshua 23 actually has mirroring sections. At the beginning, in verses 2 to 5, Joshua rehearses God's past faithfulness. And then at the end, in verses 14 to 16, Joshua forecasts God's future faithfulness. You know, it's a word of promised judgment, yes, but still the focus is on God keeping his word. In verse 8, Joshua commands the people to cling to the Lord, their God. And then in verse 12, he says, don't cling to the idolatrous nations around you. And then right in the center of it all is verse 11, which I think is Joshua's main idea. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord, your God. So friends, guess what? The main idea of Joshua's sermon is going to be the main idea of mine this morning. Here it is. It'll be on the screen if you need to write it down. Because of his mercies to you, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Because of his great mercy and grace to you, be very careful. Be diligent to love the Lord your God. Friends, more than anything else, what Joshua wanted the people of Israel to know and to remember after his death was to keep loving God above all. Joshua preached for their affections, didn't he? He wanted their heart's attachment to anything else in the world to to pale in comparison to their attachment and devotion to the Lord. Notice the verbiage Joshua uses. He says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Joshua knew it takes special attention, doesn't it? To have a heart devoted to God. It's not something that just kind of happens by spiritual osmosis. It's something that you must be diligent to do. I think Joshua's words reflect Deuteronomy 6, right? The great Shema, which Jesus repeats when he was on the earth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Friends, be very careful to love the Lord your God. This week, uh, a couple days ago, I was making a protein smoothie in my kitchen. And who should come uh, behind me and say, Daddy, I want a smoothie, was my little three-year-old Canaan. 
And so I had already put the protein powder in the, the, the blender and I was, had my back to Canaan and I was getting the, the frozen fruit out of the freezer. And he goes, Daddy, what's that? I said, that's protein powder, buddy. He goes, I want some protein powder. And no sooner ha- had I said, you're about to get some, did I hear the blender turning on with only protein powder in it and the lid off. And friends, when I said that <laughs> there was just a fine layer of protein powder over everything in the near vicinity, that's probably an understatement. I mean, it took me 30 minutes to clean up. I was not very careful to watch Canaan. I guarantee you next time I will be. Friends, I think this is what Joshua is getting at. We need to be vigilant. It takes awareness and energy and work to love the Lord. The question is how? How? How do we do this? When there are so many things in this world and in our hearts that are vying for our attention and our affections, how can we ensure our devotion to the Lord? Well, thankfully, I think the Lord gives us three ways right here in the sermon. And reform the outline today. Number one, rehearse God's faithfulness. Rehearse God's faithfulness. Number two, forsake God's rivals. Forsake God's rivals. Number three, heed God's warnings. Rehearse God's faithfulness. Forsake God's rivals. Heed God's warnings. Well, but I pray that the words of Joshua would resonate in our hearts this morning. That the Spirit of God might strengthen us for these very things. Number one, rehearse God's faithfulness. Look at verse three. Verse three, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain along with all the inheritance that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the West. Friends, notice Joshua's pastoral strategy. He doesn't immediately launch into exhortation mode, right? He doesn't begin by using the force of command. Instead, what does he do? He reminds these leaders of Israel of all that they had seen the Lord do as a catalyst to their future faith and obedience to Him. Look at verse 5. The Lord your God will, will push them back before you. He'll drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore... Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the law of Moses. Joshua essentially says, remember all that the Lord did. God fought your battles. God gave you the land. He has been so unfailingly kind to you. Therefore, love and obey him. You see this same thing running kind of the opposite direction in verse 9. Look at verse 9. So in verse 8, Joshua exhorts the people to cling to the Lord. Then verse 9, 4. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts the flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be very careful, therefore, therefore, to love the Lord your God. You know, so often, friends, these connector words in the Bible, like therefore and for, are massively important because they show us the logic of the Christian life. Look at all that the Lord has done. Look at who he is. Look at how faithful he's been. Now, therefore, love and serve and obey him as the fitting response to his grace. You know, friends, rarely in the scripture does God kind of simply invoke his sheer authority and rule as the motivation for obedience. I'm the king. I'm the creator. You're the creature. Now obey me. That's rare. 
Friends, that type of thing is a, is a go-to move in my parenting, I have to admit, right? Cooper, please do such and such. But why? Because I said so, right? You don't need a reason, right? You're my child. I'm your parent. Just do what I've said. But you know what, friends? That as my kids get older, I suspect that I'll use that move, that logic less and less. Because I'm not after my kids' sheer submission to my authority in their life. I want them to obey me out of a heart of love. In a similar way, God is not after our kind of duty-bound obedience. He's not after kind of a a pin-your-arm-behind-your-back kind of submission to Him as the only reason you obey just because I have to. No, He is after your heart's love. He's created us as affectional creatures with desires and, and a will that control our actions. Friends, we've, we've talked about this before, but remember that your actions, what you do, is always downstream from what you love. And what you love is always downstream from what you believe to be true about God and His world. So friends, in order to obey God rightly, we must love Him rightly. In order to love God rightly, we must know Him rightly. We must meditate on the glories of who He is and what He has done for us. Friends, the Christian life is nothing less than a response to God's grace. It's God's grace that fuels and empowers our obedience. Our obedience to God as believers simply just ought to be the the grateful response to God's prior action for us. Maybe you've heard theologians talk about it this way. The, the, The indicatives of the gospel always precede the imperatives. In other words, that's just a fancy grammar way to say the realities or the facts about God's action in the gospel come before His commands. These gospel facts are kind of like the train engine. What Jesus has done on the cross are like the train engine. God's commands are the the caboose that follow the engine. It's never the other way around. Friends, you can search high and low in the Scripture. You can search high and low in your Bible And you'll never find a single instance in which the obedience of God's people is what earns God's love and grace. You realize that? It's always rescue first and then response. It's always God's action that enables and motivates our own. Think back to the Ten Commandments. Think back to the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Sinai. You you know, you, you might think without careful study, that the point is, you know, these these people must obey these commandments to somehow garner God's love and affection. After all, you think about Sinai. The Lord descended on Mount Sinai with, with smoke and an earthquake, right? The mountain was literally on fire with the holy presence of the Lord. Surely the people must obey this God to persuade Him to love them. And yet, before God gave a single command, what did He say to Moses? Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Be implied, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the same logic the Apostle Paul employs throughout all his letters to the churches in the New Testament. You know, Paul's pastoral strategy was so often to spend a good portion of his letter just kind of reveling, basking in the glories of the indicatives of the gospel, reveling in the fixed truths of what Christ has done. And then only then, once he's done that, does he pivot 
to the implications of how we ought to live in light of the gospel. Just take Romans. Paul spends 11 chapters carefully unfolding all these different aspects of the glories of the gospel in Romans. And then he pivots on a dime in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. In other words, in light of the mercy of God in Christ to you, I appeal to you, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, that's what, that's what Joshua was doing here in this sermon. He beckons the leaders of Israel to rehearse God's mighty acts of faithful love to provoke a heart of devotion to him. He could have said things like this. You saw with your own eyes, didn't you? What the Lord did when the Jordan River was at flood stage, when we had no ability to cross over, the Lord rolled back the waters and we passed over on dry ground, just like at the Exodus. Oh, leaders, surely you recall that day when the Lord toppled the walls of Jericho with simply the trumpet sound and the shout of the people. Oh, who could forget? Who could forget? That day the sun stood still in the valley of Aijalon and the Lord hurled down hail from heaven to crush the enemy. Ah, don't you remember that day when we were outnumbered a thousand to one by the armies of the north with all their horses and with all their chariots? And yet when the time came to fight, our army cut through them like butter because the Lord fought for us. I love what one brother pastor said. There's a, there's a reason most of the Bible is narrative. It's chapter after chapter, story after story of God putting his people into impossible situations so that he can show off. You know why? So that every time you crack open your Bible, you'll remember grace. God has acted for me. He didn't respond to me. He initiated, right? He acted. He delivered. And so all of God's promises will come to pass. He has never not been faithful. Beloved, God's past grace grounds our hope and our trust in His future grace. If He has been this faithful and this kind in the past, then surely I can trust Him for everything in my future. From tomorrow's temptation to the the suffering that seems to be looming on the horizon to my eternal destiny itself. Brothers and sisters, this thing, this type of thing ought to be the bedrock of our faith. If God set his love on me before he laid the foundation of the world, then surely he'll, he'll not let me go in the hour of my need. If Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the demands of God's justice for my sin, then surely those sins have no right to dominate me in my everyday life. If Jesus rose in victory over the grave itself, then then surely there's not an area of my life that is not safe and secure in the love of God. My goodness, if God took a sinner like me who was entrenched in, in selfishness and rebellion against Him and in the miracle of grace gave me eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of Christ, then surely God will always be for me. Surely there's nothing that can separate me from His love. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so often the greatest threat to our spiritual lives, to your spiritual life, the greatest threat is not some obvious, loud sin that we most often kind of recognize or the 
the telltale signs of drifting away from Jesus. The greatest threat to our spiritual lives so often is that we simply forget. We forget the faithfulness and mercy of God. We simply kind of put our lives on autopilot and assume that everything will be okay. And then surprise, surprise, when temptation arises, we act like, well, it's just too powerful for us to overcome, right? When suffering hits, we we respond in a way that makes it seem like just this thing is just too big for God to handle. Beloved, what habits do you have in place in your life to rehearse the faithfulness and goodness of God? So John, I, I read my Bible and I pray consistently. Praise God. I, I hope that's true. We ought to be marked by Bible intake and by prayer. But as you cultivate your devotional life, remember that, that Bible reading and prayer are never for the purpose of making you more precious to God, but so that God might become more precious to you. Don't take in the Scripture to check off a box. Friends, take in the Scripture to ignite your heart into a flame of praise and love and worship. Let me just give you a pastoral suggestion. This is, this is not, thus says the Lord, at all, but I think it maybe is a wisdom application of what we're talking about here. Friends, when you're in your devotional time, don't walk away. Don't walk away from your Scripture, scripture reading until the wheels of your heart are in motion toward love for the Lord. In other words, wait, don't kind of walk away from your devotional time until something arises in your heart, whether it's praise or whether it's confession, whether it's petition for yourself, for your family, whether it's intercession for others in the church. In other words, let the word of God be like a launching pad into your prayer life. Or better yet, take the words of the scripture that you're reading and pray them back to the Lord. The point of the spiritual disciplines is not intellectual stimulation. The point is not academic knowledge. The whole point of our disciplines is so that God might become more precious to us. Theology is for doxology. Praise God that he has programmed it into the rhythm of the Christian life that every seven days, God's people gather together to sing and to pray about regarding the work of Christ, remind each other of the gospel, hear the word of the good news preached. Friends, how many times in my Christian life have I come into a gathering where my week has been marked by spiritual lethargy or discouragement or even sin, and the Spirit of God takes the worship of God's people, He takes the word of God, and what does He do? He ignites the embers of my heart that have been dormant. He begins to fan the flame of love once again. He steals resolve to re-engage in the fight. Friends, corporate worship is discipleship. You know, some weeks, some weeks you're going to march into this place with your head held high, full and vibrant and overflowing of all God's doing in your life. And friends, some weeks, you know this, you're going to trudge or stumble in here cold and dry and empty. But I hope you'll always come at the end of those cold and dry and empty weeks. Don't let that be excuse to stay home. And when you come, come ready and willing for the gospel to reshape and reorder what your heart loves. Come ready to confess and to forsake your sin, eager to confront your heart with the glories of God and the gospel. 
Beloved, if we're going to be very careful to love the Lord our God, it starts at the very beginning by rehearsing God's faithfulness to us. Number two, forsake God's rivals. Forsake God's rivals. In light of God's mercy, Joshua exhorts the people in verse 6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, so that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of the gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. You shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done this day. Verse 12, For if you turn back and you cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and you make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you. Friends, how will God's people be very careful to obey the Lord their God? Not only by remembering the Lord, but also by rejecting the competition. And we know that, that our God has no true, actual rivals, does he? There, there is none like the Lord our God. We read about it in Psalm 135, right? The, the, the idols of the nations are impotent. They have eyes. They don't see. Ears. They don't hear. False gods are just that. They are fake, pretender, imposter gods. But guess what? Joshua knew. Joshua knew what John Calvin would express thousands of years later. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And let's face it, let's face it, Israel's track record was not too good in this area, was it? No sooner had God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt than they fashioned what? The golden calf in the wilderness while Moses was on Sinai. No sooner had the Lord given them the victory over, over Sihon and Og and Balak, the kings of the Transjordan, than the people fell into sexual immorality with the women of Moab and worshipped Baal of Peor. Friends, the, these pockets of Canaanites that Joshua mentioned still live among God's people. They were a live threat to the future of Israel. Not because these peoples were, you know, powerful militarily, not because they were going to somehow stage a coup in Canaan. No, but because idolatry is so deceitful and so destructive. Our hearts are so prone to wander. And so Joshua commands Israel to separate themselves from the pagan nations. Don't, don't have the, the type of casual association with them that would tempt you toward false worship. Don't intermarry with them even, lest you be seduced by their idolatry. Let me, let me be very clear here, friends. Joshua's concern in warning Israel against mixing with the Canaanites, marrying with them, has nothing to do with, with ethnicity, okay? Uh, people have tried to, to twist a passage like this into some sort of ethic against interracial marriage, and that misreads the text entirely. Joshua's concern has nothing to do with ethnic purity but with spiritual purity. He knew that mixing with the peoples of the land would be like, a, be like a gateway drug leading to the embracing of these people's gods. And tragically, friends, that's what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, don't, don't we? We read the book of Judges, read the rest of Israel's history. What happens? Israel runs after the idols. Even King Solomon himself, one of Israel's great kings, drifted from the worship of the Lord into idolatry through the influence of who? His foreign wives. Brothers and sisters, God has always 
called his people to be distinct from the world. To represent him in such a way that it makes crystal clear where our fundamental allegiance lies. You know, this call is, is, is not to avoid being around unbelievers. Christians have tried that in the past, you know, to kind of cloister in little enclaves, never to interact with the surrounding world. It never works. Even Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. He befriended the lost to influence them for the kingdom of God. Separation from the world is not about avoiding sinners. It's about not following them into their sin. Turn quickly to John 2, or excuse me, 1 John 2. 1 John 2, it's on page 1021. 1 John 2, on page 1021 of that Bible underneath your seat. Look at what the Apostle John writes in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, John isn't using the word world here to refer to the, the created order that God has made. He's not after some sort of kind of hyper asceticism that denies yourself any pleasure or goodness from God's world. I mean, just read First Timothy, read Ecclesiastes, and you'll quickly see that God means for us to enjoy the world he's created for his glory. Rather, the world that we as Christians should have no affection for, John says, it's the organized system of human civilization that's actively hostile to God. John is talking about the fallen world. And he couldn't be clearer that this war is fought at the level of the heart, right? Love for the world is all about competing desires. We're not to desire the priorities and the pleasures of this age that are under God's judgment. We're not to crave what the world craves or prize what the world prizes. Friends, if you have any doubts about this connection that I'm kind of making here between idolatry and worldliness, flip over to the end of 1 John. Flip over to the end of 1 John. Look what he writes in chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God. We Christians are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then he concludes the letter in verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. You see, idolatry and worldliness are really just two sides of the same coin. Idolatry is the worship of anything or any, anyone besides the Lord. Worldliness is gratifying and exalting oneself to the exclusion of God. Worldliness is embracing any pattern or, or thought or affection or action that opposes the reign of King Jesus and his word in our lives. So friends, worldliness can be as obvious as drunken, sensual partying or as insidious as giving your heart's allegiance to a political candidate who promises a utopia only found in the kingdom of God. RGC family, worldly idols are everywhere around us. And as the people of King Jesus, we must renounce them all. Well, let me ask you, 
where are you getting your cues for how to live in the world? How to talk, how to dress, how to engage the culture? Let's just consider a few applications. I mean, there are so many we can make. We could spend the rest of the day doing that. Let's just talk about a few. Friends, the world will tell you that the dominating goal of your life should be to, sp- to stockpile as much money as humanly possible. You can never have enough. The world's messaging is that it's more blessed to receive than to give. Friends, are you on guard against this constant barrage of materialism and consumerism pumped at you every day that you live in this culture? Have you bought the world's bill of goods or have you embraced the Christian ethic that Jesus is our greatest treasure and that it's more blessed to give than to receive? Sisters, the world will tell you, sisters, that your value and your worth is in your appearance and your sexuality. That you need to to dress in a certain way that highlights your sexuality in order to be valued. Friends, do not believe those lies. Your value is fixed in Christ alone. The gospel frees you to dress modestly so that God gets attention from your life, not you. In a place like Phoenix, where outdoor recreation is enjoyed all year long, you know, the world's messaging, perhaps even maybe the kind of predominant idolatry of Phoenix in the valley is that we can live our life, and in fact, the best life, the good life, the best life, it's found in comfort, it's found in entertainment, it's found in trips, it's found in in all the rest, right? Well, praise God for His goodness and creation that we can enjoy. But friends, worldliness would be to worship the gifts more than the giver. Friends, our desires are windows into our soul. What are you captivated by? What what do you think about most often? What images have the power to arrest your attention? It could be a thousand things. Many of them might not be sinful in in themselves, right? Sports, video games, board games, movies, music, friends, family, work, success, physical attractiveness, popularity, the list goes on. But friends, if you're more excited about those things, if if that's what gets you going, let's say more than serving in the local church or discipling a brother or sister in Christ or getting the gospel to the lost, well, friends, you can be sure that to some degree you have begun to be seduced by the fallen world. One application for our single brothers and sisters is found right in the middle of the text itself, right? Verse 12. Joshua prohibits Israel from marrying the Canaanites. Again, because of idolatry, not ethnicity. Earlier in the service, we kind of read, Dustin did, the the New Covenant parallel in 2 Corinthians 6. God's people should not marry unbelievers. Single brothers and sisters. Allegiance to Christ must be a higher priority to you than finding a spouse. And I'm guessing this fight for you is going to rage probably in your heart most strongly at the very beginning, at the starting block of the relationship, not the finish line. You meet someone, she's beautiful, he's charming, you love their personality, you get along well. 
Yes, but do they love Jesus? Are they committed to the Lordship of Christ? If not, friends, that relationship, as innocuous as it may seem, is spiritually dangerous for you. Don't start something that you ought not finish. Don't enter into something that has the potential of turning your heart away from Christ. Friends, I think there's a reason Joshua uses the analogy of a snare and a trap when talking about idolatry. Because rarely do we see its danger up front, right? Satan's strategy is actually to hide the danger from you. He'll make the idol look shiny and desirable and a value add on the front end. But only on the back end, when our hearts have already hooked onto the idol, do we realize that the whole thing was a spring-loaded trap from the beginning. You say, John, I'm convicted. I, I realize that there are parts of my life marked by love for this world. What do I do? Friends, you simply repent of your sin and you turn back to Jesus. You confess your sin to the Lord and you forsake it. You know, friends, as believers, we never repent into a void. We're not, we're not turning from our sin to, to self-help. We turn from our sin to Christ. We turn from sin to find God's mercy in the gospel. We repent because of the promise of forgiveness and the unfailing love of Christ for us. And then that fresh experience of God's mercy and kindness that forgives our sin, it fuels within us a fresh love and obedience to the Savior. That's how it works. We read Romans 12, 1 earlier about responding to God's mercies. Paul continues in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Friends, how does that happen? How does the Spirit transform our minds to love God, not the world? Well, it's only as we see the glory of Christ and the gospel and we shape our thoughts and minds by the word of God. How must we be careful to love the Lord our God? We forsake God's rivals. Number three, we heed God's warnings. In verses 14 and following, Joshua warns Israel of the dire consequences awaiting them should they turn away from the Lord to idols. Joshua reminds the Israelites in verse 15 that just as every good promise of the Lord has come to pass, so too, so too, will every word of judgment should they forsake him. Friends, I think what you're seeing here is kind of a, kind of a back to Eden kind of warning. We've seen throughout the book of Joshua, when you set Joshua in the land of Canaan within the storyline of the Bible, Canaan is presented to us like a new Eden. It's the land of blessing, right? It's the abundant land flowing with milk and honey, just like Eden. It's the land where God is going to give his people a, a, a Sabbath rest, a type of Sabbath rest. However, if they forsake the Lord, they will be driven from the land just as surely as Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden following the fall. And of course, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you've read the Old Testament, you know that that came true, right? Israel eventually did apostatize and God ejected them from the land into exile. So friends, Joshua's warnings here are not the kind of the musings of a grumpy old man, right? <laughs> Just grown pessimistic in his old age. All he sees is, is doom and gloom on the, on the horizon. No, friends, this warning, these warnings are a word of love. Think about it. Is it loving or unloving 
for the doctor to warn you about what could happen to you if you continue eating poorly and never exercising? Is that loving or unloving? Is it loving or unloving for you to warn your child about the danger of snakes on the trails in the Arizona summer? Friends, warning someone of a clear and present danger is evidence of love. If you're not a Christian, I, I wonder if you, as, as a, as a non-Christian, do you ever think of God as a God who loves you enough to warn you about the folly of living apart from him? Friends, in today's culture, I think there are kind of two prevailing views of God. He's either the cosmic therapist who exists to affirm you and make you feel good about yourself, or he's the cosmic killjoy who's harsh and rigid. Friends, both of those views of God are false. God is the ultimate joy giver. He's a God overflowing with love. But at the same time, friends, God has ordered his world in such a way where our highest joys, the only thing that can satisfy us is him. In our sin, friends, we've forsaken this joy. We've abandoned this love for lesser joys and false loves. And because of our rebellion against God, we deserve his judgment. God would not be a God of love if he let sin go unpunished. His justice would be compromised. And yet the profoundly good news for you today, friend, is that even though you and I have failed to be a faithful covenant partner with God, there is one who has. There is one who has always carefully loved and obeyed the Lord as God. Because Jesus Christ never sinned. And yet, on the cross, God poured out his holy wrath on him. Why? Because God is somehow unjust? No, because Christ willingly took our place. Jesus bore God's judgment for our rebellion, not his own. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead to prove that sin's penalty had been paid in full for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Friends, the most loving thing that God can do for you is to warn you that judgment awaits you if you continue on in your sins. And yet at the same time, he has made a way for you to be forgiven and cleansed and restored through the work of Christ. So friends, I encourage you, don't just easily kind of shirk off God's warnings this morning. Come to Jesus today. But what about for us as Christians? Are, are God's warnings only for God's people under the old covenant? Like, you know, these warnings, since we're all under grace, the, the warnings have no teeth, right? No, not at all. Think about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, it's filled with warnings, isn't it? About the folly of abandoning Jesus. Just listen to Hebrews 3.12 as an example. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, as one brother put it, there is no contradiction between a full-throated affirmation that our salvation is by grace alone from eternity to eternity. And the fact that God warns us that if we do not persevere in faith to the end, you will not be saved. Brothers and sisters, authentic faith in Jesus perseveres to the end. In other words, real trust keeps on trusting. 
So, so just as surely as we can tell an unbelieving friend, listen, if you don't trust in Christ, you won't be saved on the last day. So we can remind one another, oh, brother, oh, sister, if you don't keep trusting in Jesus, you will not be saved. Say, John, are you saying I can lose my salvation? Absolutely not. I simply mean that those who are truly Christ keep on trusting. They keep on repenting. Yes, we stumble and we bumble our way through the Christian life sometimes, but in the end, Christians endure. And guess what? Guess what? God's warnings like this, these in Joshua, like the one in Hebrews 3, God's warnings are one of the ordained means by which God allows us and motivates us and helps us and keeps us in persevering faith. The warnings of Scripture for Christians are like a hazard road sign, right? That, that warns drivers about a danger ahead. You know, drivers who want to stay on the road, they're going to see the warning sign and they're going to slow the car down on the hairpin turn. Friends, likewise, for those of us who are truly Christ, when we hear the warnings about the dangers of forsaking Jesus, you know what our hearts ought to do? We ought to recoil. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine forsaking Jesus. And so God's warnings combined with a heart of faith become the very means by which God providentially keeps us and we endure to the end. God's warnings are an expression of love for us. He warns us because He wants us with Him on the last day. But just as surely, friends, as we rehearse God's faithfulness, as we forsake God's rivals, we must heed His warnings. Friends, as we close this morning, I just want to encourage us as Christ's people. I, I could see how a sermon like this one with such a clear call to holiness and to worship and to love for God might cause some of us to despair. Do I truly have enough faith to endure, right? Is my love for Christ sufficient in God's eyes? Well, friends, I just encourage you, remember that we today in Christ have something far better than Joshua's generation ever had through the work of Christ and the ministry of God's Spirit. Joshua said, I'm going the way of all the earth. And he did. But in that very sentence, or excuse me, let me back up. Joshua indeed went the way of all the earth. He died. And as, and as soon as he died, within a few years, friends, Joshua's presence, his memory, faded from the life of Israel. Now contrast that with the Savior leader who shares Joshua's name. Yeshua of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. Like Joshua, Jesus forecasted a day that he would leave this earth. But in that very sentence to his disciples, he promised them and he promised us that he would always be with us. He would go, but he would never leave. John 16, 7, I am going away, but I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 20, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved, the reason we can cling to the Lord our God, the reason we can reject idols and heed the warnings is not because you and I have the necessary reservoir of strength in ourselves, but because God in His grace has given us Himself to strengthen us for the task. The gospel is not merely that Christ died, 
The gospel is that Christ died, that he rose again, and that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit who has raised our dead spiritual hearts from the grave to new life and now remains with us until the very end. Remember what God told Joshua all the way back in Joshua 1? He said, Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you. Beloved, what was unique to Joshua is ordinary to all believers under the new covenant. By grace, in Christ, our God promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So friends, be careful to love the Lord your God. Cling only to him, knowing that he will hold you fast. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as the King and God who is always with us. Oh, Father, we thank you for the ministry of your Spirit that encourages us and keeps us and reveals the glory of Christ to us. Oh, Father, I ask that this morning, if there's some Christians here, brothers and sisters, struggling in the fight, oh, Lord, may they renew their their hearts this morning by a look, rehearsing your faithfulness to them through the gospel of Jesus. Oh, Father, would you give those who are kind of laid down the sword, help them to pick it up again and start waging war against the idols of this world and the idols of their hearts. Oh, Father, may we truly heed and and take these warnings seriously, but may we view them through the lens of faith. Oh, that we would never, could not imagine ever abandoning Jesus. Oh, Lord, I ask that if there are some here this morning that don't know you through faith in Christ, Oh, Father, help them to to understand the beauty of the gospel. See Jesus in all his glory, in his life and death and resurrection, and come running to him in faith even today, we ask in Christ's name.